I absolutely despise your festivals. I get no pleasure from your religious assemblies. Even if you offer me burnt and grain offerings, I will not be satisfied. I will not look with favor on your peace offerings or fattened calves. Take away from me your noisy songs. I don't want to hear the music of your string instruments. Justice must flow like torrents of water. Righteous actions like streams that will never drive up. He says, basically, I don't care about your worship services, your chapels, your songs. I don't care about all your sacrifices, the the children's ministry, the homeless shelters you work in, because in real life throughout the week, you are a horrible, wretched sinner. And justice doesn't matter to you. Okay, this goes back to um, 1 Samuel, chapter 15, when Saul's like, but I did obey God. I just kept the king alive and all the animals, but we're going to sacrifice them to you. That's okay. It doesn't matter that I'm like making fun of everybody and gossiping at work and that kind of stuff or at school or cheating people. It doesn't matter if I'm like ignoring people and stealing things and that kind of stuff. I'll go in and sing my heart out on Sunday morning. And God's like, you're just noisy. Remember, if I sing with the voice of angels and yet I have no love, I'm just a noisy claim. God doesn't care about that. Then, this is where he calls them to true worship. Now remember, back in Genesis, I told you that God never, ever, ever, ever calls our singing songs or what happens in church as worship. It is never called that. The words for worship are rooted in commanding Adam and Eve to work until the garden. That's what worship means. The Bible never calls singing songs worship. He calls it praise. That's praise. So don't get me wrong. It's not that God doesn't want that. He wants it. He just has a different name for it. It's called praise. Worship goes back to working and tilling the garden. Worship is when you're building the kingdom of God throughout the week. Then after the fall, a new layer of worship gets added to that, and that's obedience to the law. So all throughout the Bible, whenever God uses the word worship, he's talking about first and foremost working with your hands the sweat and the blood of your body to build the kingdom of God at your school, at, at Nationwide, at Chase Bank, and your, your factory, and your neighborhood, and the, the psychiatrist's office that you run, and the hospital that you're part of, okay, the construction job you have. You're out there making the world good. Remember we talked about good is functioning the way it's supposed to. And that's one of the things that I feel very blessed that, yes, I'm remodeling my house to a certain extent, but I'm building my girls' beds. I'm building swing sets. I'm making things function good for people, and I enjoy it. It's my way. It's my Sabbath. I connect to God in that Sabbath. I'm being creative like him, and I'm not just doing it to get more stuff. I'm doing it just because I got to do something. And it becomes like a father-daughter time, too. Every time I go out there, I take one of the girls with me, and they take turns, and it becomes a fellowship talk. And that's my attempt to redeem remodeling the house. And the ultimate goal, too, is to create a basement, like what I'm doing now, that they can bring their friends over, and they're more likely to be at my house when they hang out than somebody else's house. Okay? And then they'll hopefully feel safe there. And so this is that building the swimming pool for this. I'm trying to redeem a DIY project with a father-daughter time and an ultimate invite the friends over time. And so... This is what God is saying. That's worship. Worship is building the kingdom of God with whatever thing you've been gifted. Mathematics, 
There are lots of places. Go into the psychiatry field. There's a lot of bad psychology out there. Write papers to change the way that people think about psychology and do psychology in a more biblical way, and then do psychology to help people get better lives that are good, that they're functioning the way they're supposed to. This is what you're supposed to do. Go to Chase Bank. If you work in the banking industry, there's a lot of bad banking policies out there that hurt a lot of people. Be influential and rewrite the policies of how banks do things so that the bank functions the way it's supposed to function, taking care of people. And in the process, you will make them more successful. And then they'll be like, how in the world were you able to do this? And you'll say, let me tell you about my God. That's worship. Okay, It's not just, hey, how do I share Christ with people at my work? It's make the work function the way it's supposed to function, and people will be so oppressed with your work ethic and your touching everything and it becomes good that they'll then ask you why you're different. Now, I know that's easier said than done, but welcome to working in a garden that has thorns and serpents and snakes in it. But that is not easier, that is not as easy as it sounds, but it's way more fulfilling than just making money to pay the bills so I can have time with my family or trying to find something I love to do. That's how you can even turn working into the coal mines into something that's beneficial. So what God is saying is that's worship. Then after the fall, it's also obedience. It's obeying him. It's, it's the Ten Commandments. That's true worship. Then when you do that, guess what? You'll experience God. God will show up in a work that you never can imagine. It. The boss who hates you, God will protect you somehow. And then when you're trying to do good things and they hate you for your righteousness and your just rulings, God will somehow drive that all away and make it work out for you. And and when you don't know how to talk to this person, all of a sudden they come out of the middle of nowhere and you think they hate you and they're trying to compete with you to take your job. And it might be five or six years later and they finally say, actually, I respected you this entire time, even though they've treated you like crap for 20 years. That's where it'll pay off. And when that happens, then you have something to praise God for. And when you sing about his compassion and his justice and his mercy, and his, it actually means something to you because you have physical image stories and events in your life that are matching up to those words. And this is what God is saying is true worship is. True worship is that. Praise is the symptom of worship. Amos calls him to let justice flow like a river and righteousness like a never-ending stream. This is being contrasted with the seasonal streams that dry up. In Israel, the streams would come, and then they would dry up. And they would come and dry up again. And God is saying, that's not what I want righteousness and justice to look like. It's not to be a splurting artery, okay? It is to flow continuously, nonstop. The word justice here comes from mishpat. And in this context, it means taking actions to correct injustice and the lives of others. It means that when you see injustice, you step into the injustice, roll up your sleeves, take the bloody nose, and try to stop it. It doesn't matter whether you get hurt. God will take care of you. It doesn't matter whether people will throw insults at you like, I didn't ask you to step in, or that's my husband. He's beating me, but now I'm going to turn on you. Okay? It doesn't matter. Mishpat means I see injustice and I step in 
and I take it. And I don't do what most Americans do anymore, where we just whip out the iPhone and start recording and then post it on YouTube. That's what he's condemning Israel for. Making money or getting social likes and hits on YouTube and on Facebook because I recorded social injustice. That would probably be the modern-day version of you cows of Bashan. Do you see injustice? Step in. And yes, it's going to be scary. And yes, you must be overtaken. And yes, it doesn't mean you just step in in like a horrible circumstance that you know you're going to die in. Jesus also said, be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. Don't be an idiot about the way you throw yourself into stopping injustice. There's a certain extent that you do put the mask on your face first before your family so you can be around another day. But also don't hold your life so tightly that you won't do anything because you're scared of any possibility of what might happen to you. And I, and I don't mean that just physically stopping violence. I mean financially taking a bloody nose for trying to stop injustice or emotionally or reputation or mental well-being. There are many ways that we take bloody noses in this world. Most of the time it's not physical. Most of the time it's our reputation. Most of the time it's our emotions. Most of the time it's our time. Other things that don't get done. And that's mishpat, stepping in. The word righteousness, in the context it means to be right relationship with everyone despite their social standing. So one is when you see people being oppressed or violated, you step in actively and stop it with wisdom because wisdom guides everything. Not foolishly and recklessly because God's love is not reckless, but with wisdom. Righteousness means I live rightly with all of you socially. That I can walk up to the people who are black and the people that are Asian. That I can walk up to the, the feminazi, the, the, the woke people. Okay, That I can walk up, walk up to the KKK, the far right, the far left. And I can live rightly with them. That I can truly step in their lives and see something good and genuine about them. And I can talk to them and relate to them. And yes, I can very much say this is evil and that's wrong or I don't agree. But I don't think like, but you're one of them. Can you go to the people who voted for the other party and live rightly with them in compassion and love? Can you walk to the people who have hurt you? It doesn't matter what their race, what their gender, what their social status is, what their political view, what their worldview is. You're able to have a genuine, loving conversation with them. Will it be difficult at times? Heck yes. Will you take insults? Heck yes. But will they see different, something different? Yes. Will it hopefully change them? Only by the grace of God. God's not guaranteed that every righteous act with everybody is going to be rewarded. But what he is guaranteeing is that he'll take care of you. And so what he's saying, true worship is this. When you see injustice, stop it. And when you encounter people, regardless of whether you're the same or completely different, this constantly flows out of you like a never-ending stream. And you say, but what if I dry up? Well, you serve a God that gives you bread and water that is not of this earth. It doesn't mean that you have to be on 24-7, constantly meeting everybody's needs, because even Jesus got away and recuperated. And for introverts like me, you need a lot more time <laughs> recuperating. 
And God wants you to take care of yourself, but not to the extent that you never get involved in anybody's life. And this is what true worship, this is what he's calling them to. Look, all I want you to do is just step into the oppression of people and help alleviate some of it. All I want you to do is have a loving, decent conversation with people that are different from you. And yeah, you're going to screw up at times because you're a sinner and you're flawed. But if you pursue it and you allow the Holy Spirit to work through you, and that's something we have that they don't have, then this is what God will bless. This is what God will bless. What is true worship? To let justice, stopping oppression and social injustice when you see it. And righteousness, living rightly with all people of social classes, let it flow out of you like a never-ending stream. That is worship. That is expanding the garden. That is what Christ did. That is what we are called to. What he's specifically thinking of is the oppressed. Loyalty expressed through obedience has always been the highest priority to Yahweh. Loyalty expressed through obedience, worship has always been the highest priority for Yahweh. If this is not true of one's life, then sacrifice and songs mean nothing to Yahweh. None of us do this perfectly. All of us get distracted by the bright lights of America. All of us are beaten down. But this must be a part of our life. Now, if you have a family, that's the first place that it starts. Okay, do not sacrifice your family to fix everybody else's problems. This is the stereotypical pastor kid. The pastor was too busy trying to be this to everybody that they unintentionally ignored their kid. I'm not saying all pastors do that, but there's a stereotype for a reason. Okay, the presidents who try to run the nation and fail to take care of their kids. Your first and primary task is your family. Those little kids have been given to you by God and they desperately need you. But there is still some left over because they need to see you doing that in other people's lives so they will grow up to be images of God too. And then when you're retired and you don't have those little children anymore, then you can amp up that true worship. You can amp it up. But remember, this is not me saying what you should do. This is the Bible saying this is what worship looks like. And then you go to the Holy Spirit and God and you ask, what does this specifically look like in my life with my skills and my station in life and my money and resources? Does that make sense? The Bible is now telling you, here's the law on paper. This is what it looks like. But the beauty is that we have a new law where the Holy Spirit can say, this is what it looks like for you. And this is what it looks like for you. Because the piece of paper can't be that specific with each individual like prayer with the Holy Spirit can be. And if you need friends who know you well to help you brainstorm and discern the voice of the Spirit, then amen. But ultimately, it should be the voice of the Holy Spirit. So when you go home, ask the question, what does worship, justice, and righteousness look like for me where I am in life right now? Am I already doing that? That's the one side of the three-by-five card. Or do I need to do more of it? That's the other side. That's the question. Or am I doing too much and I have sacrificed too many things and too many people as a result? And I need to back off and do it for the right reasons, not to earn approval. Verse 25, you did not bring me sacrifices and grain offerings during the 40 years you spend in the wilderness, family of Israel. 
you will pick up your images of Sukkoth, your king, and Kiliam, your star god, which you made for yourselves, and I will drive you in exile before it be beyond Damascus, says Yahweh. He is called the God who commands armies. Here's the irony. When I take you into exiles, you're going to pick up your gods and you're going to carry them with you into exile. That God that you've been praying to to protect you and care for you, you're going to carry him and he's going to go right with you because he can't do jack crap. I am God. That's what he's saying. Chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to those who live in ease in Zion, to those who feel secure on Mount Samaria. They think of themselves as the elite class of the best nation. The family of Israel looks to them for leadership. They say to the people, journey over to Kaneli, um, Kana, and look at it. Then go from there to Hamath Rabbah, and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are they superior to your two kingdoms? Is their territory larger than yours? You refuse to believe the day of disaster will come. They say, hey, look at the World Trade Towers. Look at the stock market of New York. Look at these great things that we've accomplished in America. Disaster will never come to us. But you establish reign of violence. You lie around on beds of decorated with ivory, and you sprawl out on the couches. They, they, they eat lambs from the flock, the calves from the middle of the pen. They sing to the tune of stringed instruments. Like David, they invent musical instruments. They drink wine for sacrificial bowls and pour the very best oils on themselves. Yet they are not concerned over the ruin of Joseph. They don't care about the oppressed. They don't care about people who are being at the hand of violence. They make money off of violence, but they don't care about what the violence has done to people. They've built iPhones off of the slavery of little children, but they don't care what has happened to them. I don't know what to do. You can boycott buying iPhones and that kind of stuff because they do that. And I would amen you all the way to whatever. But the reality is it's impossible to find anything that hasn't used that. And so I have this friend is like, they, every time they learn about some horrible thing, they're like, I'm not buying Time Magazine ever again. I'm not buying this. You know that like every single company has made profits off of oppressing people. Really hard today in America to say, I'm not going to buy anything because of that. So I'm not trying to sit up here and condemn you for having like healthcare products. Like, because that means you can no longer use deodorant or shampoo because of all the things that they support with their profits and that kind of stuff. And I'm not going to target because they have transgender bathrooms. Like, okay, welcome to everybody else. Like, I, I, I totally agree with that. And my heart is with you on that. But then you're living out in the woods, living off of the land, and you have no role in anybody's life anymore. The question is, what do we do when we live in a muddy culture? We're going to have to get muddy in order to be in this culture. That's why we have the Holy Spirit who can constantly cleanse us. The question is, what mud is okay and what mud is not okay? And the only one who can answer is that the Holy Spirit. And how do we keep each other clean? How do we go to God to keep clean? And how do we not cross the line and get too deep in the mud, so to speak? That's a difficult thing. And that is not easy to just say, we're not going to do it or forget it and just do whatever you want. That requires difficult conversations among the people of God. Honest, transparent, non-judgmental conversations. And that's a hard one. So when I say things like this, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty or condemned. I'm just throwing ideas out there that will begin brainstorming conversations that the Holy Spirit can bring answers to. And some of these I haven't figured out either, where the lines are. I'm struggling with them myself, where the lines are. 
Verse 9. If ten men are left in one house, they too will die. When their close relatives, the ones who will burn, the corpses pick up their bodies to remove the bones from the house, they will say to anyone who is in the inner rooms of the house, is anyone else with you? He will respond, be quiet, don't invoke Yahweh's name. So basically, like, everybody's going to die. And if you're crying out, that are there anybody alive, then you're making it known that you're still alive, which means you're going to have to die because God wants to judge you. So this is how thorough God is going to be. Indeed, look, Yahweh is giving command. He will smash the large house to bits and the small house into little pieces. Can horses run on rocky cliffs? No. Can one plow the sea with an oxen? No. Yet you have turned justice into poisonous plant and the fruit of righteous actions into a bitter plant. You can't plow the sea and the horses can't run on rocks, but you have somehow turned righteousness into injustice. That's the implication. You were happy because you conquered Lo de Beer. You say, did we not conquer kingdom by our own power? Look, I am about to bring a nation against you, family of Israel. Yahweh, the God who commands armies, is speaking. They will oppress you all the way from Lebo Hamath to the stream of Arab. You're still probably thinking, this is really harsh. This is really harsh. Why is God so often saying, no one's going to be left alive. I don't want anybody to be left alive. If I hear anybody talking, I'm going to kill them. It sounds like a father who's gotten to their wit's end on the chaos in the house. Okay, It's like, if I hear another word, you're grounded for life. That's what it sounds like, but that's not what it is. Remember that Israel, when we were in the book of Kings, when we started after the kingdom split, it was assassination after assassination after assassination after assassination. It was civil war after civil war after civil war. There was idolatry and more idolatry and all that kind of stuff. And it got to the point that one of two things were happening. All the righteous people living in Israel were like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And they were leaving and going to Judah and moving there. And the righteous people who were not leaving and escaping were being massacred and killed. And we're getting to the point at this point, Jeroboam II still has oppressed and victims and needy and poor. But we're getting closer and closer to the point where there literally is no righteous person left in Israel. One point is that you literally will have no righteous people at all who are left in Israel when the Assyrians come. And by righteous people, I mean who literally killed the image of God in them so thoroughly there will never, ever be a desire in them to ever repent. It's not that God can't bring them repentance. It's not that God can't save them. It's that there's, they've kill, it is possible to kill the image of God thoroughly. This is what Hebrews warns against, that you can kill the image of God so, severe, so totally that you cannot come back to Christ ever. Not because Christ won't take you, but there's nothing in you that will want that. That's one point. The other point is this. They have become worse than the Canaanites. And I, I can't even begin to imagine that. Remember, we briefly talked about the Canaanites, and they're way worse than anything you've ever seen in Hollywood. Hollywood's not even brave enough to have movies like that yet. So that when God says, I'm going to kill you all, that's what he's talking about. It seems harsh to us, but we're talking about people who are so evil. They've destroyed people's lives in a worse way than the Khmer Rouge and the Nazi party. And they have so severely 
so thoroughly killed their image that there is nothing in them that will ever come back to God. And the best thing for a God who loves the world so much that he gave his only begotten son is to remove them from the planet. Because if they're worse than Hitler and the Khmer Rouge and there's no hope of them being redeemed because they don't have anything in them that will want to, then why have them here anymore? Because all they do is destroy the innocent. And so it seems harsh on the surface, but if these people were living in our land, doing these things to our family, even the uber-woke leftists would be crying out for death. Okay? And, I, and I truly mean that. This is the message of God. We want a God who hates sin and loves people. We want a God who is angry when we are wronged and hurt. We want a father who cares that you fell down or got punched or oppressed by somebody and will hug you and will put the fear of God in that little boy and make him feel scared to ever touch your daughter again in a healthy way. We want gods that are like that. We want presidents that are like that. We want teachers. We want leaders that are like that. And we get angry when justice is poured out on us because don't you dare judge me. But we also get angry when nobody does anything with the cops who kill people innocently or the people who businessmen oppress people. There's so many things that the leftists specifically, not liberals, but the leftists who say this is evil, this is wrong, you should be punished. But then they're getting mad that people are getting punished. Because deep down inside, we want justice. And we may not fully understand God's ways, but once again, we have never been under the boot of a massacring dictator. We have never truly been under the boot. And we don't know what that's really truly like. Okay, We have all been victims, and I'm not undermining or downplaying your pain or your oppression or your victimization. But not like this. We're really ready to say, to slaughter them all, God. There's the emotion. 